suppose I should explain why I'm laughing. Daniel left me a note on the pulpit here, and it's in Greek, so it took me a second. <laughs> Good morning, church. Please open your Bibles that you've hopefully brought with you this morning to Matthew chapter 9, the very first book in the New Testament. And after you've found chapter 9, we will start in verse 35. Jake Vlensic asked me a couple weeks ago what I was going to be preaching on this morning, and at the time I, I hadn't really landed on a text yet, and so I asked if he had any suggestions, and his argument was, well, we haven't heard from one of the Gospels in a while on a Sunday morning, and so how about something from one of the gospel accounts. And I said, okay, but the people need to understand that it's your fault if the sermon is a dud. <laughs> so if you don't know who Jake is, find me afterwards. I'd be happy to point him out to you. <laughs> Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38 is our text. I'm going to read the text, and then we'll pause to pray and ask for the Spirit's help, and then we'll dive right in. So please stand with me now, if you are able. Out of respect for God's word as it is read to us this morning. This is what the Lord has to say to us, brethren, from Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The grass fades and the flower withers, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Remain standing with me as we pray this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. This day each week, this day in seven that you give to us as a gift. Not a, not a burden from a harsh tyrant, but a gift of delight from a loving Father. God, we thank you for this God-ordained opportunity to pause and to rest from the busyness and chaos that life is. And to devote ourselves to public and private acts of worship. And as we do, continue to do that just now, as we gather with your people to worship you on your day, might you continue to receive our worship and be pleased by it. You are the object of our worship. You are on the throne and high and lifted up. You are the creator and sustainer of all creation. In you we live and move and have our being, and only you are sung to as holy, 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 and worthy of our praise. We confess, Father, that we don't gather together to have our own preferences or particular desires met. We gather to magnify and make much of the one true living God. And what is more, Father, what is overwhelmingly more than, than your people gathered together on your day is we get to hear from you. We get to open your word to us. Might we never grow tired of the God of the universe speaking to us. So speak to us now, we ask, by the power of your spirit. Continue to be glorified in our midst for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
by way of outline, for those of you taking notes, here is the main idea this morning that I want us to grasp. As the Lord of the harvest and the very content of the gospel, Jesus calls his people to participate in a plentiful harvest. As the Lord of the harvest, the very content of the gospel, Jesus calls his people to participate in a plentiful harvest. And we're going to operate under three main headings this morning as we seek to further understand the, the main idea of the text here. And those three headings are this, the eye of Christ, the heart of Christ, and the mouth of Christ. Essentially, we are asking three questions of the test, the text. What did Jesus see? What did he feel? And what did he say? The eye of Christ, the heart of Christ, and the mouth of Christ. Now, before we kind of just walk through these verses, line by line, verse by verse, we need to take a step back, don't we? I don't know how many of you have been skydiving before. I never have been. I'd, I'd like to someday. Maybe some of you feel the same way. But even though I've never been skydiving before, I can understand that the parachute is pretty essential. It's kind of a vital component to the whole process, right? Again, I'm no expert, but you jump out of a plane at just the right time, you deploy a parachute. And when you deploy the parachute, it, it catches the wind, it kind of gives you a little jolt, so I'm told. And then you slowly descend, drop down, land in the middle of a field. Well, we all just went Bible diving. Daniel mentioned Bible salad last week. Well, here we just went Bible diving. We just deployed our parachutes. We deployed our parachutes and just landed in the middle of the field of Matthew's gospel. And whenever you parachute into the middle of the chapter, of the middle of the book of a Bible, when that parachute deploys, it ought to give us a little jolt to say, okay, slow down. What's going on here in terms of context? If we truly want to understand that the meaning of any particular text, we have to question what the author is saying to his audience in context. And I want to highlight this reality this morning. I'm sure this is a review for all of us, but it's important for this particular passage this morning, and hopefully that will become more and more evident as we proceed. So, what has happened thus far? What are the historical events leading up to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Obviously, a, a ton that we can say here, right? And so what I'm going to try to do is give a brief biblical overview and, and cliff note some of the things in redemptive history up until this point. And I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. And so I certainly don't expect us all to, to grasp every detail here. That's not the goal. The goal here is for us to just kind of get a, an overall sense of where we are at in the Bible. And, and this will matter. Um, there really is, again, one simple point that I want to seek to highlight by doing this, and hopefully that will become more clear. So let's, let's start from the very beginning. Much like any story, the beginning is very important to set the stage. And the story of all stories, the story of salvation, is certainly no different. In the beginning, the eternal and triune God of the universe creates the world and everything in it in six literal days. And rests on the seventh day, Genesis 1 and 2. God then makes a covenant with man who he created in his image. He makes a covenant of works with our first parents, Adam and Eve. The, the representatives of all mankind in the garden. And he says, do this and live. And they break this covenant, don't they? They, they sin, they disobey God. 
and they fall from their original righteousness in Genesis chapter 3. Man, then having brought himself under the curse of the law by his fall, it pleased the Lord to make a covenant of grace. This covenant of grace is God's plan to seek and save a lost people. It's a free offer of salvation, which God requires not good works, but, but faith in a coming Messiah. This covenant is present in the Garden of Eden, just in very shadowy form. It is yet to be fully revealed in, in time and space. It isn't ratified in its fullness at this point in redemptive history. But this covenant of grace is revealed as a promise in the garden. When the Lord says to the serpent after the fall that he's going to place enmity between him and the seed of the woman. Who does this point to? This points to Jesus. This is God's eternal plan, and he's now revealing it to man just in shadowy form. And so in the garden, you have this announcement of the plan of God to save sinners, and it is through his son, Jesus Christ. And then from that point forward, in the life of Israel, God's chosen people, for centuries, you begin to see Scripture working towards this promise of God. God makes a covenant with Abraham and says, I will give you a land and, and multiply your offspring as stars in the sky. The, the kings will come from you. Ultimately, the king will come from you. And you will have a sign, a visible sign to identify the people, which is circumcision. And even this points to what is to come. A people that would identify with Christ, a, a new covenant representative, a, a better Adam identifying with him in baptism. This points to Jesus. You can see how this points to Christ that was promised in Genesis 3 and now is being revealed further and further as history progresses. God makes a covenant with Moses, reveals the, the blessings of living in the land of the promise to Abraham, as well as here is how you ought to continue to live in this land. You are to obey my laws and statutes. And this points to Jesus. It shadows, it further reveals in, in regards to the law, the perfect law-abiding one, this Christ that was to come. What Moses did for the people, literally the great high priest who is Christ, will do spiritually. Moses points to Jesus. God makes a covenant with David, and what does this do? It points to Jesus. It certainly had initial purposes for the nation of Israel, and we've been learning this, and we'll continue to as we return to 1 Samuel, Lord willing, next week. But ultimately, this is a further step, a, a further revelation. The, the shadow is becoming more clear as this points not to the king they desired, not to the king of the nations, but to the king who was to come, the king that they were in need of. This points to Jesus, Abraham, Moses, David, typified. Fancy word for represented or pointed to Jesus, who is the greater prophet, priest, and king. This covenant of God is revealed progressively through history, further and further as the arrival in the incarnation gets closer and closer. Growing up, my father was a big hunter and fisherman, and we did a lot of activities pertaining to such. One of our weekly um, 
I'm tempted to say nightly, but weekly is probably more accurate. One of our weekly activities was to shine deer. I don't know if anyone's been deer shining before. I'm not sure if that's popular around here. It, it certainly was popular for rednecks in northern Minnesota. I actually think it might be illegal now. Um, <laughs> it was legal when, we were, when I was growing up, trust me. Essentially what, what shining deer is, if you're unfamiliar, you get in the pickup truck and you get this, this giant spotlight. It's like the size of a basketball and it lights up the whole field. And so we drive around our hunting fields scouting the deer. Deer come out at night. Oftentimes they're hard to find in the fields in the day. They stay in the woods. And so we drive around after dark shining deer. What do you want to do tonight? Let's go shine some deer. <laughs> Yay, look, deer. Oh, look over here. Guess what? Deer. <laughs> Same deer we saw last night. This is fun. But with each year, my dad would get a brighter and brighter spotlight. Technology was improving, and so he was like a kid in the candy store. Upgraded my 2,500 lumens to 5,000 last night. Oh, yeah. Deer don't stand a chance. 5,000 would become 10,000 and eventually 50,000, and I don't know what they make these days, but I'm sure my father has it. Well, this is exactly what is happening in the Old Testament after Genesis chapter 3. The plan of God is being further and further revealed. What is shadowy becomes more and more clear as the, the lumens increase. The, the spotlight begins to become brighter and brighter upon Christ. With, with Abraham a little brighter, with Moses, it's as if the lumens are, are turned up. David, even further as this becomes brighter upon Christ. The, the target has been fixed. The light hasn't moved. This has been God's plan from eternity past, revealed to man in the garden. This isn't plan B. But that fixed spotlight upon Christ is becoming brighter and brighter and brighter. And then in regards to time and space, the second person of the Trinity then, the Son, takes on human flesh. He takes on a human nature, is born of the Virgin Mary, Emmanuel, God with us. Immediately, King Herod searches for the child to destroy him. And Joseph and Mary, remember, flee to Egypt until Herod dies. Eventually, they return to Nazareth as Jesus begins to prepare for ministry for 30 years. John the Baptist comes on the scene, paves the way for Jesus' ministry, and then just the right God-ordained time, Jesus is baptized and begins his public ministry. He gathers a group of disciples preaches the greatest sermon that has ever been preached that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then begins going from town to town, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. Verse 35 again, Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Jesus goes from town to town, and what is he doing? Three verbs. He is teaching, proclaiming, and healing. He is teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing disease and affliction. He's teaching some sort of content, and we'll get to what that is in just a second, but then he's pairing that teaching with some sort of action. 
these miracles, that's, that's really what they are, miracles, these miraculous signs, these acts of healing are here in the text to vindicate. That's, that's their purpose. They, they uphold, they, they prove, they defend the content. He, he tells them A and then shows them B as a means to say, this is why A is true. Do you see my power? Do you see my authority made known to you? And this ought to vindicate the message that I just gave you. The point worth noting here is the message is central to Christ's ministry. What is that message? The text says he was teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. And here's what we have to catch. In terms of where we are at in redemptive history, Jesus says in John chapter 14 some remarkably shocking words. I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gospel. No one comes to the Father except through me. The shadows, the types, the promise, here I am. Turn off the spotlight. You don't need it anymore. I'm standing right here. The age of shadow is behind us. The age of type is behind us. The age of promise is fading away right before your eyes. I am the content of the gospel. What Christ is proclaiming here, brethren, is himself. The gospel of the kingdom, God's plan to seek and save the elect people of God through the Son by the power of the Spirit. This is the gospel that the kingdom of Christ is all about. The prophet is here. The priest is here. The king stands before you. Jesus himself is the good news these people so desperately needed. So he devoted himself to going city to city, teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God and healing every disease and affliction. Moving on to the text of verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw the crowds. Let's deal with those first five words of this verse under our first heading, the eye of Christ. What does Christ see here? Without jumping ahead too quickly to how Christ responds to what he says, what he sees, let's first ask the question, what does he see? He saw the crowds. Now it likely in terms of numbers, 200 different cities that he's going through, population around 3 million people. And Jesus doesn't just spot them or, or view them or observe them physically. No, he saw the crowds. The Greek root word here, horao, is more than just merely to view or to spot or to physically see, but rather it denotes a, a much more robust range of meaning to, to not only physically see, but to pay attention to to understand, to perceive. Jesus saw the crowds. I don't know the biggest crowd that, that you've ever been in before. Civic Center, Soldier Field maybe. For me, when I think of crowds, I think of the Minnesota State Fair, which is always the number one ranked state fair, by the way, just saying, pretty unanimous. 
droves of people. The record is like 270,000 people in a single day, all standing in line for the same cheese curds. It's the worst. (laughs) Oftentimes, if you go on the wrong day, go at the wrong time, you can hardly walk because the crowds are so large. And yet, even though I lay eyes on potentially upwards to 100,000 people, do I actually see them as indicated here in the text? No. Why? Well, because Sweet Martha's cookies are on my mind. I got a pronto pup to find. I'm a man on a mission. I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to eat. And honestly, I think this is how we have a tendency to operate in life sometimes. Lee and I just moved here from Washington State a couple years ago, and there's this stereotype called the Seattle Freeze. And I'm here to tell you this morning it's a real thing. People would drive their cars into their garage, shut the garage door before exiting their car, and walk into their home. And this was a practice that I believe is truly microcosmic of the culture as a whole. People rarely entered into each other's homes, in and out of the public sphere only when necessary. People kept to their own business, as if they're on the way to the funnel cake and they don't care who they pass on the way. My apologies if I've made you hungry. My, I said funnel cake and my stomach literally just grumbled. <laughs> the eye of Christ is always open, brethren. It never shuts towards an immortal soul. And I want you to think about the implications of that for you personally. Praise God that Jesus saw you. Praise God that Jesus continues to see you. But then might I ask us, as imitators of Christ, the eye of Christ is always open, is yours. Are our eyes open to the people around us, particularly to the non-believers in our spheres, as this is the context of the text, Do we look and pay attention in order to perceive and understand, or do we pull our cars into the proverbial garage and shut the door? We're going to find out next what is at stake. The remainder of verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We've asked, what did Jesus see? We're asking here, what did Jesus feel? Now, let me just say initially that feelings are often a difficult subject. At least they, they have been for me. If I'm honest, this is, this is one of those topics. Um, I think this might be too bold to say, but I'm, I'm going to say it anyway. This is one of the holes in Christian theology. This is one of those aspects, very few of them in the Christian life and practice, in which I've been dissatisfied with how we've dealt with it historically. And, and I'm not saying that I have anything to contribute. I'm just saying from my perspective, many great theologians have wrote countless beneficial material in regards to orthodoxy and how to think rightly about God. Many, countless theologians have wrote many beneficial materials all throughout church history some even particularly recently, about orthopraxy and right practice. But when it comes to orthopathy 
and the right way to feel. It's almost as if we've dropped the ball. Jonathan Edwards' work, Religious Affections, is certainly a satisfactory work, and so it's not like these things have never been dealt with. I I think John Piper has devoted a lot of his life and ministry to seeking to find some of these answers. But, But in terms of the scale, this is not the area in which our best works have been produced. And so it's difficult, I admit. And here's the danger. See if you agree with this. Picture the, the path on a country roadway. Our, our life is the roadway. Our, our Christian walk is the roadway. And on both sides of the road is a ditch. Equally steep and dangerous ditch on one side and equally st- steep and dangerous ditch on the other. I think in regards to our feelings and how we manage them and navigate life in them, most of us find ourselves in one of the ditches on the side of the road. Either our lives are, are run by our emotions, we, we ebb and flow depending upon how we feel in any given moment. People around us just have to wonder. I, I wonder how dad is going to be feeling today. I wonder if mom is going to be in one of those moods. There's, there's no consistency, but life is just dictated by emotion. What is true is driven by how we feel. I feel like it's not loving to deny a man's right to marry another man. It doesn't feel right. Or I feel like God doesn't love me and I'm, I'm unhappy. Why would God allow this? He, he must not love me. And, and we could go on and on, but I think many of us are in this ditch this morning. And many of us are in the ditch on the other side. We're Stoics. And for whatever reason, we've bought the lie that feelings are the devil. So we refuse to express them. As fathers, we don't express the love that we have for our wives and our children like we ought because it's just not the manly thing to do. Some of us are fatalists in our worldview. Ah, it doesn't matter. Why should I even care? Now, I know I've created very polarizing options here. But I think the reality is we all lean in one direction or the other. We we might not all be stuck in one of these ditches this morning, but we're all, this side of glory, leaning towards one ditch or the other, being pulled in that direction. So maybe that's a a, a good discussion to to have on on the ride home. Children, ask, ask your parents in the car, which ditch do you see yourself having the tendency to lean towards? And then ask yourself that same question. Consider it. For yourself. And maybe have a conversation around how you can best as a family help one another stay on the road. I mention all this because here in our passage, Christ had a true human feeling. The second member of the Trinity took on a human nature, meaning he's like us in every way, yet without sin, which includes true, real, authentic, and yet pure feelings and emotions. B.B. Warfield said that nothing is lacking to make the impression strong that we have before us in Jesus a human being like ourselves. Jesus is fully God and fully man, a divine nature and a human nature in one person. We call this in the theological world the hypostatic union. Jesus, according to his human nature, And that that nuance is is very important. 
We can't ever separate the natures of Jesus, properly speaking, but it is appropriate for us at times to distinguish between them. Jesus, according to his human nature, has emotions. He has two natures, and when we refer to his emotions, we are referring to his human nature. Jesus, according to his human nature, had emotions. Jesus, according to his divine nature, does not have emotions. God doesn't have emotions. This is what we call the doctrine of impassibility. And it really is a sermon for another day, but it's, it's so important because it's here in the text, and we, I think we need to discuss it succinctly. God is without passions. D- divinity doesn't change. God doesn't change. I, the Lord, do not change, Malachi 3, right? There's no change in God. He, he, he doesn't ebb and flow back and forth between happy and sad and angry and glad. He just is. He, he always is and always has been what he is. His existence is absolutely independent of anyone or anything outside of himself. And so nothing outside of himself can affect him or, or stir emotions or passions in him. And this is really good news for us. Now, some of you who know your Bibles really well might be like thinking to yourselves, wait a second, There are a lot of times that we see language in the scripture that seemingly, on its face, indicates otherwise. And that's a really good question. God is jealous, for instance. When the Bible says that that God is jealous, for example, it it isn't making the claim that, that God is truly and properly jealous as we can be. But rather... This is what theologians call anthropomorphisms. And I know I just said anthropomorphism, and so it's natural that your eyes just glazed over. But we have to understand what is going on in the text here. This, this, you might be saying to yourself, this is more than I bargained for this morning, but be, please just hang with me. This is really important stuff. An anthropomorphism is when God accommodates himself to us in such a way in order to teach us something about himself. And so often he will take on our language, for example, in order to help us learn something about him. For instance, let me try to illustrate. The Bible says that God hears our prayers. He hears our prayers. Does does that mean that he has physical ears? Well, no. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. But when he tells us that he hears us, we certainly know and understand what he's talking about, right? He's he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Our prayers don't land on deaf ears, as it were. He accommodates to our language. He, He takes on an ear in the conversation, if you will, in order to teach us something of himself. And that is what is happening in the text in which God seemingly has emotions. The church, up until very recently, has confessed this. Down through the ages, the doctrine of impassibility, God without passions. Now, we, we equally and, and, and as robustly and strongly and as with equal conviction need to confess that Jesus, according to his human nature, had true, real, authentic emotions and feelings. And that is crystal clear from the scripture, right? Mark 3, we see that Jesus is angry with the Pharisees, a, a holy, righteous anger. We read in, in Hebrews 12 that for the joy that was set before him, despising the shame, he endured the cross on our behalf. 
Jesus weeps in sorrow in John 11 over the death of Lazarus. He sweats great drops like blood and agony as he prays in the garden in Luke 22. Jesus, according to his human nature, absolutely, full stop, had true, real, authentic human emotions and feelings. And here in the text, we have an emotion of Christ on display. And so, implication number one, brethren, before we get into even what that emotion is, it's okay to have emotions. Matter of fact, we need to say more. Sometimes we're commanded to have them. Not in whatever sense that the culture defines that word. We, we can't muddy the water here. But in a biblical sense. For instance, Paul tells us to be angry and not sin in our anger. That's not a suggestion. That's in the imperative mood. That's a command. Some things, much like Christ with the Pharisees, ought to make us angry. If, if the slaughter of 3,000 babies every single day in this country doesn't make you angry, brethren, that's concerning. Potentially a sin of omission. There's an absence of righteous anger. And so because our emotions are so tricky, can often be hard to navigate, whenever the emotions of Christ come up in the text, we would be well served to lean in, to seek to truly understand what is happening in him. And here in the text is one of those times. Jesus sees the crowds and has compassion for them. This word compassion here is, is it's a deep, inward, almost guttural pity. Emotional turmoil and inner pain. He feels this. This is an emotion of Christ on display. The English word really doesn't do justice. When's the last time that you saw someone in your sphere of influence, whether a close family member or a friend that was in the valley and was suffering mightily? You know that sinking feeling in your stomach? Your throat dries up, it's hard to talk, and you just, you just look on in anguish because they're hurting so badly. This is the compassion Christ feels towards these people. And why? What is the cause of such inner turmoil? The text says because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Some translations say faint. They are weak, they are feeble, they are wandering around lost like the sheep do when they have no shepherd to lead and guide them. Man, sometimes you have to try to visualize the text for people, and sometimes it's just right there. Pretty strong, is it? Sheep left to themselves are kind of dumb. I, we, brethren, left to ourselves are more than just kind of dumb. We are weak in and of ourselves, feeble in and of ourselves, helpless, as the text says, if left on our own. You see a, a bleeding sheep in a field with no one around, no water in sight, walking circles in the same barren pasture. Why is that a terrible thing? Why is that sad? 
Well, because they don't have a shepherd to lead them to green pastures. It doesn't have a shepherd to lead it to still waters. It doesn't have a shepherd to quiet its weary soul. And there certainly is an under-shepherd component here that that I think will be clear from verse 38 when Jesus tells them to to pray for more laborers, laborers like you and I who will go into the harvest. But first, we we can't miss the ultimate source of Jesus' compassion here. It isn't because they're void of other Christians to lead them. It isn't because they're void of leaders in their life. It isn't because they're void of pastors and elders elders to be their under-shepherds. Ultimately, Jesus has compassion because their lives are void of the good shepherd. They lack himself. They are Christless. And so he's in agony. And he isn't agonizing over their social well-being or their political status or their economic state. He has compassion on them because they are headed to hell apart from him. He has compassion because... He knows their eternal and conscious torment that awaits them. Brethren, he sees them. He he truly sees their condition, and it stirs compassion in his soul. Because their harassment and helpless in the here and now is just a drop in the ocean of the pain and suffering they will endure for eternity if they don't find union in the Good Shepherd. I am the door, he says, and I will soon lay down my life For these sheep, brethren, if the eye of Christ is always open towards the lost, the heart of Christ never stops beating with compassion. Moving on in the text, our final consideration, the mouth of Christ. Asking what Jesus says. Listen to verses 37 and 38. He said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. First, in verse 37, Jesus establishes the condition of this harvest, doesn't he? How plentiful it is. This this isn't a harvest that is lacking in any way. And when we think harvest, I think it's safe to say that the gathering of Christians seeking to make disciples, this isn't a harvest that is lacking or or barren or scarce, but a bountiful, abundant, plentiful harvest. In the immediate context of Christ, three million people, very few of them following Jesus. And so this group of people that Christ has compassion on is abundant, and yet the laborers are few. Very few laborers to work this particular harvest. And then in verse 38, he says, Therefore, because the harvest is plentiful and the laborers few, pray. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The first thing Jesus tells his disciples to do is not to teach, it's not to preach, it's not to proclaim, it's not to heal, it's not even to go. They will eventually be sent out, if you read down into chapter 10, very soon. But as Jesus begins to mobilize the troops here, combat assignment number one is not to go, but to pray. Puritan John Bunyan said this in light of these verses, You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you can't do more than pray until you've prayed. 
Bunyan realized the vital component to Christian ministry here, the posture of prayer. But why? Have you ever wondered that? Why does Jesus direct them here? First, he tells them to do so many things, but why first pray? Well, because this is the means that God has chosen to work through. Prayer, in and of itself, doesn't do anything. God does it. He is the Lord of the harvest. He is the one sovereign over the harvest. But God often works through means, doesn't he? God is pleased in his infinite wisdom to to work through the means of prayer. Pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. God's the Lord of the harvest. He, He could just... Send out whoever he chooses. He could, he could raise people up to give themselves for the sake of the gospel on his own, but it pleases him to work through means. The prayers of the saints. And the clear application here, brothers and sisters, is to do just that. To pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to send out laborers into his harvest. To pray individually, to pray corporately, to pray as families and friends, that God would raise people up to be sent into the harvest for the sake of gospel ministry. I want to take the last minute or two as we close and and apply this to our current context here at Bethany Community Church. I I think a lot of times we read passages like this and immediately think globally. Real missionaries, the real missionary work is, is done across the pond that's the kind of laborers Jesus is talking about here, full-time missionaries. And, and while that certainly is a piece to the puzzle, we, we prayed about it already this morning and should continue to, for, for God to raise up laborers from Bethany to be sent abroad as global missionaries, that's an extremely good thing. I'm discipling a guy one-on-one who's just really jazzed about, up about this potential opportunity. And that excites me. But I think that is potentially too narrow of a perspective in terms of the labors Jesus is talking about here. It, it certainly includes those folks, but it also includes the here and the near and not just the far. It includes the Jerusalem and the Judea, not just Samaria and the ends of the earth. It doesn't just include South Africa and Ecuador and Turkey and India, but Washington and Eureka and Peoria And might I even say Chillicothe. Bethany is working towards replanting a church across the river. Do we look across the river and see the crowds? And have compassion because we see lost people. We see a community that desperately needs the gospel. We see sheep that are Without a shepherd, lost men and women, boys and girls who are wandering aimlessly, headed straight to hell. And then, are we praying that the God of the universe, the Lord of the harvest, would raise up people and families from among us, from our midst, to be sent into the harvest? But if we are, If we obey the imperative here in the text to pray for labors to be sent into the harvest, then as Ian Hamilton has noted, be prepared, brethren, that God might say, okay, I'm going to send you. The disciples 
are the ones he told to pray for labors to be sent, and then who is sent not a chapter later to labor for the gospel, but the very disciples who prayed. The eye of Christ is never closed to the lost. The heart of Christ never ceases to beat with compassion. And the mouth of Christ is eager to pray and encourages people to do the same. As the Lord of the harvest and the very content of the gospel, Jesus calls his people to participate in a plentiful harvest. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are oh so kind to us to give us your word. Might that very word to us this morning continue to find the deepest and darkest corners of our souls. I pray that our, our minds were strengthened, our hearts set ablaze, enable us by your spirit to apply, to do, to labor for the sake of the gospel. Father, we pray for labors to be sent into a plentiful harvest. However and whatever that might look for each and every one of us, we beseech for you to make that clear to us for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of Christ. It's in his name we pray.